Today's interview was such a privilege. Sir Tim Smith has the most unorthodox yet incredible story, from a successful career in the music industry to founding the Eden Project, one of the UK's most magnificent treasures, the eighth wonder of the world, no less. Speaking with Sir Tim was completely life-affirming and his vision, imagination and commitment to change are truly inspiring. It's interviews like this that make me wish there was another word I could use, as it was so much more than this. Quite frankly, this conversation has had such a profound impact on myself and the team that we felt you needed to hear every single word. And so with that, this will be an interview in two parts. And you can find part two in the Conversations of Inspiration episode library wherever you listen to your podcasts. Sometimes we need to be reminded about the truths. And I fundamentally believe that this one conversation will change your life forever. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Tim. It is wonderful to finally meet you. And as I was just saying to you, it's a huge honour of mine. I'm a big, big fan. And I know that today, actually, I was meant to be interviewing you in person at Eden. You know, this was going to be Conversations of Inspiration live at Eden. I know your team had amazingly set this all up for us, but unfortunately, we've not been able to be together. But where do you find yourself today? I find myself at Bedardal Farmhouse, my farmhouse that looks straight down the Foy River Valley. So I'm on a very high spot. It's very blustery. I'm not at work today because I've actually taken very much to working from home. I enjoy it. I actually prefer being at home yeah. to being in an office. And don't we all? Well, actually, maybe not everybody does, but I do. I couldn't agree with you more, actually. I found, I think for people who have been a long time in business and building, you know, we found ourselves away from home a lot. And so I think that there's a nicety about having your home comforts around you. I'm assuming that you were always out and about. I've always, throughout my life, often had a home base. When I was in the music industry, I had a domestic studio at home where I did the demos and then I would work out in recording studios across town. And with the discovery of the Lost Gardens of Heligan, I was spending quite a lot of time initially working from home because there was no shelter at the gardens. Mm. And then I worked out of a, a wooden shed and sheds have been the background to my life from that moment on. Since 1991, I have been a shed man. You know. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat sheds. Home comfort to extremes then, really. I'd love to start at the beginning. You were born in Holland. Your mother was English and your father was Dutch and was in the airline industry. Was it a happy childhood? 
I mean, yes, yes. I think it would have to qualify as happy in as much as it was comfortable. I was sent off to an English boarding school at a very young age, at sort of six and a bit, uh, which I didn't enjoy. So it wasn't that warm an early family life. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't full of cuddles. I got on well with my granny, but my mum and dad were, don't get me wrong, we subsequently became very warmly friendly. But at that time, they were posted in Turkey and then Nigeria. So I just didn't see them. So I, I tended to spend time with my granny in England and be at a, an English private school, which I loathed. I loathed almost every minute of it from six and three quarters to 18, mm. which is not to say, I hasten to add, that there weren't lots of nice people and I didn't learn things. Mm. I was big enough never to get bullied. It was just a kind of lonely life. And I hated the way the British educate. Mm. I hated the casual cruelty to those who were different which I observed, it never happened to me because I played rugby and I was big and I could clock someone around the ear if they gave me a hard time. But um, I learned early on that the British as a tribe can be a very cruel bunch. I don't know if it's true for every nation, but there is a kind of thing, there's a kind of class thing, which is if you are from a better off beginning, I'm talking 60s, there was at that time a sort of superiority, a kind of swooping arrogance that came from wealth mm. that I loathed and every weakness that anybody that wasn't strong had was picked at mercilessly which is the basis actually when you look at English humour which I adore don't get me wrong yes it is partially born out of the genesis of that almost cartoon-esque picking at people's weakness I just didn't enjoy it and I'm told that private education is better now whether education is better now is a different issue. I don't think it is. I think the COVID period has shown most parents that we feel better when we see the outside world and that we don't uh, know nearly enough about the world we live in. Yes. There is something rather bizarre that we don't study natural history, but it's jolly important that you study Shakespeare. There's a lot you want to talk about, about the education system, which I couldn't agree with you more. And just picking up on your beginnings, actually, my father, too, was sent away to boarding school um, at five years old and parents were abroad. So I personally know how difficult that is. As you said, it's not about there weren't lovely people around you, but the isolation and the loneliness and the a private education system, it had a lot to answer for in those times. And you left Holland, you attended your school in the UK. And I read that you had, though, some great admirations for some of your teachers. So these must have been the good people in your life. And you felt that they were great mentors to you. There was a particular person called Tom Gilbert. Can you tell me about him? Uh, Tom Gilbert. Gilbert, yes. He was great. He had classic handlebar moustache. He was Cornish by birth. For dinner, when he sat down with the kids, he would always peel an onion and eat it very slowly. He was passionate about natural history and he understood the power of storytelling. So he took it upon himself to read a story probably three nights a week he'd come into the boarding house into the dorm and read and it was there that i first heard lost worlds by arthur conan doyle brigadier gerard the same so my head was filled early with stories of dusty drawing rooms and mystery and intrigue and adventure which would stand me in very good stead, that combination of loving to be outside doing natural history and the feeling of mystery and adventure, uh, which undoubtedly shaped the way I went forward and became an archaeologist to start with. Mm. What is very odd that you never don't know when you're a child, when people tell you, oh, you've got to study something for a profession. 
I argue very strongly against that unless it's a very specific profession you want because you never know what is going to be a trigger to your interests. Mm. And Tom Gilbart was particularly interesting because he was the first polymath I've ever met. He was interested in everything. He was interested in literature, in science, in culture, in the round. He was interested in community and storytelling. And as far as I was concerned, he was the perfect teacher. I've been lucky enough to have many great teachers. Tom, I think, probably shaped my life more than anybody else. And his son wrote to me out of the blue a few years ago because I had mentioned Tom in the Times Educational Supplement as being a particular inspiration. He wrote to say how warmly he felt about that, that someone remembered his dad in that way. Mm -hmm. At my later school, I had a number of very fine teachers, one who terrified me and got me grades way above any expectation I had. <laughs> and the other was Hubert Moore, who was my English teacher, who implied that everybody had great writing inside them if they only had enough time to do writing for long enough to discover their own voice, yeah. which is something that I think is hugely important because I think that so many people are lonely because their creative voice has been stifled because they have no idea. Mm. I'm fascinated going to art galleries and looking at people terrified walking around them, having no idea what's a good painting, what's not a good painting, what colour do they like, what colour don't they like. So many people are suggestible because they have never had the time with their crayons for long enough. They were ripped away. Mm. And it's the same with music. Why is it that when you ask hundreds of people, what do you wish you'd learnt at school, which you didn't have the chance to, they don't talk about more maths. No. They talk about music, dancing, writing, painting. And I think that the cultural side of us actually lies right at the heart of what makes us happy uh, because we can express the true selves that we have. And I think it's really sad. And I think this COVID period of, I can't remember since I was five or six, I have never lived through the seasons of the spring, then summer, now autumn, so closely having the time because of being locked into a space yes. of seeing it evolve and realizing the majesty really of this. You see, if you're in the same place looking at the seasons changing and you realize that for five miles all around your eye scan, everything is changing like that you get the sense of a life form that is brilliantly integrated and all of a piece and the weather systems seem to have part of the background music to all that as you go. Yes. And it's very profound, very profound. And I think it's left many people with a spiritual, with a small s, a spiritual yearning of some kind to have more meaning and belonging through understanding where they really are. You're like music, Tim, just to say. I mean, I just, I'm already transfixed by what you're saying. And again, I couldn't agree more. It's been quite a humbling time, actually, to be not stuck in a office. I'm sure lots of people would agree. And um, having that sort of narrow vision of what our lives potentially were. I want to ask you, you know, obviously teachers inspired you, but you went on to university in Durham, where you studied archaeology and anthropology, and then began your early work as an archaeologist. But then there was this rather unexpected leap into the music industry, and you actually began a very successful career as a songwriter and a producer. Can you just tell me how you go from being in the dirt 
to writing lyrics? Being in the dirt was fantastic. The best job I ever had. End of 1976, I became deputy county archaeologist for County Durham, which sounds incredibly grand, but there was nobody else. There was just one guy and then me. So I was, by definition, his deputy. <laughs> well, you're far too young to know this, but 1976 was the year of archaeological orgasm. It was the year that we had a heat wave, a very, very, very long heat wave. And what happened was all these crop marks started to show up in the fields and the fells around us. Underground, if you build a structure with, say, stone or tamped earth, the grass, when it gets dry, will get drier above where you've got stone underneath. Oh, I did not know that. And where you have ditches, like prehistoric ditches for forts and things like that, because the soil is going deep and it's broken up, it holds the moisture so the grass is greener above. So it's like a photographic process. Wow. So from the air, you could say, see an entire Roman fort, because it would have had stone bases, just literally on plan from the air. And you will see Iron Age or even older hill forts or gathering spaces, just like a negative. And it was hugely exciting and appallingly badly paid. <laughs> I've played piano since I was two Right. for myself. I've never been interested in playing Beethoven or anything like that. I love Beethoven, but I don't see any reason why I should play Beethoven uh, when someone else can play it so much better. I prefer to play the music that comes up my head. And I've been doing this all my life. I was no Paderewski. You know, I was more of a Les Dawson, actually, to a point, but <laughs> I could hold a tune. And we were skint, Charlie and I. Charlie was on my stairs at uni, and we realised that the bands who were coming to play the May Balls were paid quite a lot of money. So we decided that because we could hold a tune, we very quickly, with a number of other people, put together a set of covers, bought some gear, and away we went. And it was great fun. But the best thing that happened to us was that we had a, a mad guy from the music department who was an electronics bloke. And he wasn't a musician. He was a guy who specialised in valves and capacitors and the sort of hidden secret mysteries of what would become synthesizers. Yeah. And he, for curiosity, built an enormous PA system, which meant that we had the biggest PA system in the whole of the Northeast. So when the punk boom started in <laughs> 76, 77, we made more money renting our PA to the City Hall in Newcastle than we ever played playing. Anyway, at the end of about eight months, Charlie and I decided we were obviously God's gift to music. We had these big audiences who wanted to dance. Yes. And we went to London because we knew that the roads of London were paved with gold and they were just gagging for us to arrive. You can imagine our surprise when we arrived in London to discover that on any night of the week, there were probably 30,000 better musicians than us. <laughs> and there was absolutely zero demand for us, none, zilch. So anyway, I rented a house. I was given an old upright piano and I made a bit of money doing mini cabbing, but mostly being on the dole and playing football on Clapham Common on Sundays. And one day I absolutely clattered a bloke from the opposite team on the green there outside the Windmill Pub, if you know London. And someone said, Christ, you know who you've just clattered? And I said, no. And they said, he's the lead sound engineer from Abbey Road Studios, Pat Stapley. <laughs> And I went over to him and I lifted him up and I dusted him down and I said, hello. Anyway, we became friends and I discovered that he was able to use this fabulous studio for free if there were no bookings. So we entered into an agreement whereby we started to record in probably the best studio in the world for nothing. Wow. We struck lucky, actually. We struck really lucky. My then wife was an absolute stickler for absolute honesty, by which I mean... 
the music business is quite seedy, as you are probably aware. Yes. And she said, you must be completely honourable and it will serve you well. You know. So we got five record deals back to back. That None of them were hits. But we gave copies to the musicians and the studio of the contracts we were offered. So everybody saw that we were paying them exactly what we promised from whatever we made. So we built up this cadre of people who were unbelievably above our pay grade in terms of their abilities. They were playing for famous bands and whatever, but they'd come and play for us because we always paid and we were honest and they liked us. And I discovered early on that being liked as in you're agreeable to people and you take care of people is the core of all future success. I mean, it really is. I knew a lot of people who would, you know, I could use rude words about, mm. and they would have occasional immense success. And you always hear of them, you know, the people who hold other people out of apartment blocks by their heels and things. But the people I've found to be the most successful are usually the nicest. There are exceptions. But anyway, this is in the pre-mobile phone day. So the moment of success for us. We thought success was getting a record deal. We then realized that marketing was everything because you can get a record deal, but if you don't get played, yes. all you've got is the vanity of a thousand records you're eventually going to put in your attic. There's that old joke, I've got a million seller, I've got a million records in my cellar, you know, that's the sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but we had this stroke of astonishing luck. My son, Alex, was born, this is in 1980, and the very first evening that I was able to take my wife out to dinner, we got a babysitter, my sister-in-law, and she said, could she bring a friend to keep her company? And we said, fine. And at the end of our dinner, we came back. And of course, to be polite, you've got to talk to everybody. You can't say, now go away. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked. And it turned out that her mate was an opera singer called Louise Tucker. And she handed me a card saying, if you ever need a singer, please do call me. I'd love to work with you. And I was thinking in my head, I am never, ever, 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 however many evers, going to work with an opera singer. I can't stand opera. The next day, the next day, whenever I tell this story, I sometimes wonder whether I'm even lying to myself, but it's true. <laughs> the next day, we arrived at Abbey Road to record a song which was called Midnight Blue, and the singer phoned in ill. Now, in the pre-mobile phone days, in your little, you know, address book, you may, we probably had four other singers, all of whom just happened to be out. And I had this card for the opera singer from the night before. And I called her up and she happened to be free. And in fact, just around the corner, she came in, she sang. And the record we made that day, literally four weeks, 28 days later, was number one in Belgium, then Luxembourg, then Holland, then France, then Germany. And it went on and on and on. We eventually had a seven million selling record triple platinum and all the rest of it. And we flew all over the world and had a good time. And we did two very successful albums together. And then for reasons that I won't go into here, but are not unpleasant, they're just personal, mm. we decided we weren't going to continue working together. In truth, we'd probably exhausted that genre, which yeah. was kind of, what do you call it, Vangelis Chariots of Fire meets opera meets some kind of you know, electric drum boxes and stuff. And there's a limit to how fascinating you can make that. We did the world a service. We stopped making those type of records and we went off and recorded a number of other big acts. Gosh. But I actually fell out of love with it. I fell out of love with it. I remember one day I was in a limousine going to um, an awards ceremony to get platinum discs at the Tour d'Argent in France. And we were staying in probably the best or one of the best hotels in the world. And when we got into the limo, the record that came on the radio that the driver was playing was our record. And it had been the biggest selling record in France 
in history up until some years later when you had Live Aid took it off the top. Wow. And the record that then played afterwards was the record that would knock us off number one called En Irlande by Michel Thor, which we'd also written. So it was the really weirdest feeling. And I remember when, um, well, when researching, you said that actually you sort of made a bit of a fortune and then whatever it was possible to get wrong, you say you got wrong. Despite this commercial success of what you were doing, you felt a bit hollow. Is that right? You felt a bit lost. The thing is, one of the vital lessons you can give people is be careful what you wish for. I agree. When you imagine the success you think you'll have, in your head when you're imagining it, you're imagining your mates are with you, your family and all the rest of it. The truth is, and this is a horrible thing to say, but everybody who's been successful knows it's true. There is a terrible irony in friendship that people don't like it if one of their number exceeds the expectation of the rest. Mm. I saw one of the saddest documentaries I've ever seen about the band Def Leppard. Mm. They were talking to Joe Elliott, the lead singer, and he said, you can't do right. You go back to your hometown. You don't buy a drink. You're considered a mean so-and-so. You do buy a drink. You're considered a flash so-and-so. You can't win. And he was just so sad that the success he'd imagined, he wasn't able to share with the very people he grew up with. Now, for me, it wasn't that extreme. And the point for me was simply that music was something I really loved. And it's something I had had in my life from the age of two. And when you start turning it into a commercial package, look, it's very satisfying to make the money and to appear in places and have people tell you that they fell in love to a song you wrote or something. That's great. Mm. But actually, it's essentially a very lonely thing when you realise the creative structure you've created for yourself. Whether you like it or not, great music continuously is not three minutes, 20 seconds long with an introduction, two verses, chorus, one verse, two choruses, middle eight choruses out. And that's actually how most pop music is created. And the formulaic nature of that, Mm -hmm. it enabled you to express yourself in one particular genre, but it's a bit like you've been told to only do little detective novellas, you know, for film scripts. And actually what you wanted was to write a complete novel. Yes. And I just fell completely out of love with it. You're right. I have made lots of mistakes. The biggest problem for men, mostly, not so much women, but men have this extraordinary vanity that comes from success. They can't help it. There is something where suddenly they feel like cocks of the roost. Mm -hmm. You know, you swank about. And the weirdest thing is how you will then make all sorts of decisions that if you were giving advice to other people, it's not advice you're taking yourself. As I looked at the business landscape, I realised there was so much wisdom out there which hadn't been uncovered And yet, sharing it with the world would empower so many. It's why at Holly & Co, we have created a new world you can see, watch, read and listen to today. With a single aim, to support you as you navigate your own steps on your business journey. Bringing you advice and business inspiration like never before. The Advice Hub is a free online library, somewhere to go when feeling lost or needing some guidance. We delve into lessons learnt the hard way so you don't have to with these articles, written by myself alongside experts and other small business founders who share their own experiences. We cover everything from top marketing tips on how to increase your email subscribers to the truth behind working with your partner Or how about overcoming parental guilt as a female founder, a subject I know will resonate. 
I'd love for you to go and experience it for yourself. So after this podcast, head over to holly.co and see what advice is most useful to you. And if there's something you'd like to see us cover, please do get in touch. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. We're going to go on to now your next sort of chapter in your life. In 1987, you sold your house in London. Um, You relocated to Cornwall and with your family, you bought a derelict farmhouse. You set about doing it up before meeting a local man that had inherited this estate and was looking for an archaeologist who happens to have moved into the town, you. That estate was the Lost Gardens of Heligan and it was completely overgrown, hadn't been touched since the First World War. So you had this sort of very unorthodox journey, I suppose, almost like a film. You know, a successful musician moves out of London, discovers this sort of secret garden. What inspired you when you found Heligan? Did you have a vision? Did something come to you at that point in time? Can I just interrupt you? The story sounds grand the way you've told it, but actually (laughs) the truth was we moved to Cornwall as a complete random act. We just felt like a big change. We hadn't intended it to be quite that big. We'd just gone into an estate agent while we were sheltering from the rain while on holiday in Cornwall. It was ridiculous. I lived in Brixton for about a year, year and a half, We were really, really struggling. And then in 1990, I was on the verge of bankruptcy and I went to the dentist. And when I went to the dentist, unbelievably, on the dentist's, you know, the little table where they keep the, you know, five-year-old country lives and things like that, there was a recent copy of The Stage magazine, which what it was doing in Cornwall, in Tregony, I have no idea. (laughs) And I just opened it up in a sort of desultory way to mask my fear of the dentist. And there staring at me from the centre of the page was a picture of the famous footballer who's recently sadly died, Jackie Charlton. And Jackie Charlton, when he left football, became a journalist and a very famous fisherman. And he had been commissioned to do a programme called Go Fishing, a really big series for ITV. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly thought, crikey, five, six, maybe seven years before, as a joke, when drunk with a whole bunch of people in a studio in Farnham in Surrey, I had written a song a bit like Mungo Jerry's in the summertime using banjos, guitars and sort of slappy drums. And it was called Go Fishing. And it was full of puns about, you know, I can't salmon up the energy for this. You know, this isn't the time or the place. I'm a dab hand, you know, there's something. Anyway, let's not skate over that. But anyway, so I went home and I found I only had a cassette of the music, and I sent it to the production company, expecting to hear nothing. And literally, I know, three days later, I got a phone call. They said, this is perfect. We want it as the theme tune for our series. And by the way, have you got any more music? Because we haven't actually commissioned the music for the series. So I was saved from bankruptcy through being drunk, playing a kind of pastiche of in the summertime about go fishing, and it bailed us out completely, which is marvellous. So anyway, we were a bit cheered up by this, but still no further forward in terms of a career move. And a guy I knew who ran Nuki Zoo turned up in a white van with a trailer and uttered these immortal words. He said, you have a garage, but there's no car in it. And I have a huge black pig with no home. Do you think we could put the two together? And... (laughs) I was dumbfounded. I'd never kept a pig in my life. 
But anyway, that day I took ownership. Well, ownership is overdoing it, really. I entered into agreed companionship with an enormous Vietnamese pot-bellied pig called Horace. And Horace had a nose that was unbelievably strong and he didn't like being alone. So he broke out immediately out of the garage and then he broke into my farmhouse, literally broke in, and came in and put his ass against the agar and there he stayed. Oh, my goodness. What a story. Well, he and I would enter into lots of conversations. He was a good listener, which is good. And eventually I realised that Horace was lonely and it would be really good if I could maybe find him a mate. So I went looking for a mate and luckily we found Doris. And Doris came and it was love. He never wanted to enter the kitchen again. He had far too much to do down in the garage <laughs> where they were fossicking amongst, you know, fresh hay and all the rest of it. I'll talk about it later when you ask me what's the greatest high of my life. So I won't spoil it. Yeah, don't story steal. No, no, no. But Horace and Doris are involved. Just so anybody who's still listening, they are going to make a new appearance. But I decided, as a result of all of this, that I was obviously destined to look after animals. I have no reason why I came to this conclusion, except for Horace and my affection for him. So I started to look for some land where I could have a rare breed park. And that was how I met John Willis, who owned the estate that had gone derelict. Mm. And it was only on account of the fact that I've got unbelievably sensitive lips that the world then changed for me because he instantly told me that I couldn't have the land, but he'd just given me a really hot cup of tea and I couldn't put it down. So we had to enter small talk, during which I had said that in my past I'd been an archaeologist, and then he uttered the words, I have need of an archaeologist, which I'd never heard before. That's how my life changed, because the following day I accompanied him into these gardens, which were completely overgrown, and we cut our way through five-foot-high brambles and eventually ended up at a walled garden, the classic secret garden, walled garden, with a mm. door slightly ajar, you know, the green paint peeling, the rusty hinges. Wow. And I forced it open with my shoulder and inside was a very long greenhouse where the wood had long ago rotted out uh, but the glass was twinkling held up by the remains of one solitary surviving vine and ivy and bramble and the light played through it and there was this moment where the light hit the plaster wall inside the greenhouse and I saw a pair of scissors, vine scissors, you know, for cutting bunches of grapes off. And mm -hmm. the moment my eyes picked up on tools, I suddenly saw them everywhere. And I, this whole garden was like the Marie Celeste, you know, the ship that was found with no one on it. Yes. And it was like someone had said tea time and everybody had left and never come back. And as we went through the story of Heligan, as we will no doubt talk about, that became the motif. It was the most romantic thing you can imagine. I knew inside 45 minutes of being there that this is what I wanted to do with my life. And for anybody who's listening who wants inspiration, one of the things I learnt in the music business was that if you love something, really love something, and you're not a freak, there will be millions and millions and millions of other people who feel the same. Therefore, the only issue is telling them about it. So it came, I did a lease for the estate. I had no money, but I did a handshake on the lease, which was like a music business deal going back to my days at Abbey Road, where... I said, if I can restore it and get the public in here, I will share the proceeds of ticket money with you according to this percentage split. And we shook hands on My it. My goodness. And so began this extraordinary adventure. Well, the adventure was extraordinary because we had no money. Yes. But my mate, John Nelson, who'd been building at my house, 
he said, look, all my life I've been waiting for an adventure. I'll join you. <laughs> and he had a few mates who were also looking for adventure. No one would tell us how much anything would cost, so we decided to clear one acre. The deal we made with ourselves was we'd clear one acre and see what it felt like. We just got addicted to it, and we persuaded the BBC. I phoned them up, and I said, I'm going to give you once-in-a-generation opportunity to film probably the greatest restoration history has ever seen. I had to do a bit of selling, of course. Yes. And Stefan Bichatsky, who is the doyen of Gardener's World, was hooked, and he came, and they did this film, and it won the award for Best Documentary in Britain, and there was only one floor. He forgot to mention it wasn't open to the public yet. <laughs> so the public poured in, and we had no ticketing or visitors. Car park was like a somme reenactment scene. The builder's mate, Tiggy, he had this really smart idea. He said, I've got some bolt croppers. He said, so why don't we use the blue portable toilet and I'll clip the bolts off. Then I can stand in there and we buy some cloakroom tickets from Woolworths <laughs> and we'll charge people as they come in. <laughs> so the public came in and bought a ticket from a portaloo and they would go into the garden and they'd find us working and they'd say, what's up there? And you'd go, I don't know, but here's a machete. Why don't you go and find out? It was the best business model ever invented. How clever yeah. i mean gosh you obviously fell in love at that moment in time whatever that calling was here it was being answered you also had this moment where your life was changing before your very eyes and i speak to people like keith abel from abel and co or guy singh watson founder of riverford and talk about land and horticulturalists which is a very hard word for a dyslexic to say i know you've got quite a lot of opinion here because i read that you said i say to people that the ones who will save us from extinction are the horticulturalists what would you say you know when we look at the future and people, and we're going to go on to building Eden. But at that point in time, did you feel this sense of responsibility? No. At that moment, I didn't feel responsibility. I was like the main character in the film Fitzcarraldo, who wanted to build an opera house up the Amazon. I just had this mad knowledge that people would love this place. Right. I wanted to put it into good heart. When people ask me what I am professionally, I am a frog kisser. I kiss frogs to create princes and princesses. I love putting land, putting things into good heart. Mm. I love actually putting people into good heart if one can. It is the whole idea of repair and renewal that excites me. My subsequent zealotry about horticulture came later. You've got to understand that when I found Heligan, the only thing I knew about plants was green side up. <laughs> I knew nothing about plants, which is just as well. I knew nothing about historic gardens. I mean, I'd visited them, yes. but I did realise very soon that there was a whole profession built around having the same opinion about the need to conserve and preserve absolutely everything, which is the British way. Because the British believe that the past is somehow a better place. Mm. It is a place of thatched roofs and the smell of bread on the air. And they never think of the fact that the people who are voicing this absolute poppycock, they've probably been burnt as witches. The force for being a conformist in the past was absolutely enormous. One of the things that is a theme for me today, as it was then, is a real aggression about 
conservation conspiracy. You've got to conserve and preserve everything. The landscape is perfect. The landscape, you mustn't build on it or whatever. It's just rubbish. Almost every square inch of the landscape you see in Britain has been shaped by humans. Mm. There's very little wild, which is not to say one should not conserve the beautiful views and all the rest of it. But the approach to it shouldn't be about stopping things. It should be creating high benchmarks and standards for behavior to enable things to happen. And when I restored Heligan with John... It was pure excitement of adventure. That's what it was. It was about the fact you couldn't get cobbles. We weren't allowed to take cobbles from the beach by the National Trust, but there were no cobbles to get, and we needed a cobbled courtyard. So how do you disable the engine of a tractor so that it can glide down a hill to a beach without making a sound? How do you put sacking all over the trailer so that when you throw cobbles in, no one hears them? <laughs> and how do you then steal 10 tonnes of cobbles from the National Trust without them ever knowing? <laughs> Then you do the cobble and you rub sand and mud into it. So when people say, where do you get those cobbles? You say, they've been here for about 150 years, mate. What are you talking about? You know, going to auctions, finding timber that's come from buildings that have been knocked down. The metalwork at Heligan to restore the greenhouses, beautiful, ornate grill covers over the piping, mm. that all came from people who preserved them years and years before, who saw that we were in need and they would drive from all over England with their vans or lorries I'm saying, just give us the petrol and we'll give this stuff to you. It was like the famous five. Yes. And that's how it was. And we were also accompanied by this chap, Philip McMillan Browse, who'd been boss of the RHS, who just wanted to have a second life doing something really exciting. And he was brilliantly pretend pompous. <laughs> he began this search for the lost crops of Britain because with big agriculture, what's happened has been we've created a whole range of vegetables and fruits which are called heritage. Mm. What it means is you call it heritage so it gets preserved because, of course, as I said before, we believe that everything of the past must require saving. What he doesn't tell you is that big agriculture has chosen a very narrow range of vegetables and fruits to grow because they'd get the biggest yields so they'll get the biggest money from it. So actually, all over this country incredible fruit and veg has been getting rarer and rarer and rarer. And the flavours that you can buy in a supermarket are getting more and more infantilized. The flavours are predominantly sweet. Mm. Uh, you don't get this mixture of tart and sweetness or indeed really rugged, earthy flavours. Like if I could give you turnips and swedes with real flavour and if I cooked them for you, you'd go, what on earth have you added to this? And you go, no, this is actually what real heritage Swedes taste like. Mm. I could give you a strawberry where I promise you that once you'd crushed it against the top of your palate, once you'd let the juice go down over your tongue and it had gone right down into your tummy, if I then told you you had to pay me £30 for a punnet of those, you'd be reaching for your wallet immediately. So good is the flavour. Mm. But they're not produced for us ordinary mortals because the plants die easily mm. and they are susceptible to disease. So big agriculture wasn't interested. Yep. At Heligan, we grow them and about a 100 other rare breeds. But you know something? If a bomb went off tomorrow or there was a plague that actually wiped out most of us, and it was in a post-apocalypse time. There's a fantastic book by Lewis Dunkeld, uh, which came out oh, 18 months ago called The Knowledge, and it was about how would you survive and thrive yes. in such a situation. Lots of people have written books about survivalism, you know, how to skin a rabbit and all that sort of stuff, but this is about how do you maintain your civilization? And he says immediately, 
the first thing you need to do after having stocked up on tin goods is to find some land and discover how to make the ground fertile because there will be no refrigeration. No. You've got to get rotation sorted out. You've got to manage the season so you don't have the terrible penalty of the dying month. The dying month is April. April, in the days before refrigeration, was pretty much the last outpost of anything you could have saved in straw in the dark to eat to give you nourishment. And if you'd had a poor season, you'd be probably dying before that. Gosh. These guys who are horticulturists, I cannot bear it. You get Country Living magazine and people like that. They go around gardens like mine. We were the first. We were absolutely the first at Heligan. Yeah. They go around it and it's kind of like Kensington or Chelsea lifestyle choice. Isn't it really sweet? Look at the herringbone brickwork and we can all be like a stage set from the pig uh, restaurant which is marvelous by the way i'm not taking it out on the pig but what they're doing is denigrating a science the applied science of horticulture which is every bit as noble as engineering pharmacy or medicine mm -hmm. and i would argue possibly more important than the latter two and we've allowed our country to so undermine the brand of horticulture that it is now assumed that if you are in gardening or horticulture, you must have some lack of ambition or you are the third most ungifted child of the most mm. ungifted child. It is an utter scandal. If you go back to Holland, if you are a horticulturist, you're a professional, you are viewed at the same level as a doctor, engineer, mm. accountant, and probably regarded as more noble than any of them. And it makes me furious because I'm sorry I'm having a rant. I love your rant. But last year, I had one of the richest men in China came to stay. He has the biggest plantation of fruit in the world. And he came to see me and we had a great time looking at old tools and stuff because although he's now a multi-billionaire, he grew up on a state farm uh, in the far east of China. And when he was here, he said two things. He said, how is it possible that you have what you call a democracy and you have voted for people who do not understand the importance of what has made you great? And he felt really passionate about horticulture and he gave a check while he was here, unfortunately not to me, but he gave a check of three million pounds to a big fruit research establishment here in Britain because he thought it was a scandal that the basis of his wealth, which was fruit growing, had come from the knowledge that had been garnered by British fruit researchers. And it was being treated with such poor respect in this country. Gosh. So at Heligan and at Eden, we've started training again. One of the things I'm trying to train people in is basic arrogance and self-respect. I want people to understand how to use various different types of equipment, how to be soil specialists and LIDAR specialists so that we can give people the training to make them really, really valuable. You have no idea how angry I get when I lose some of my best staff to hedge fund bloody managers who've made their pile in the city, who've now bought themselves a stately home and then want to offer like 55 to 70 grand to horticulturists plus car plus house because they're too lazy to do any kind of investment themselves. It just drives you nuts. Yeah, well, I can only imagine it does. And thank you for that. The amount that I, the listeners, have learned in that moment in time is incredible. And before we go on to Eden, I want to ask you a question because, you know, I feel in my life 
not the fullest. I know that there's still a lot to come. And I love your reference to adventure. You know, the fact that we try and pigeonhole ourselves into professions or as entrepreneurs or founders that we try and say, or as children, you know, what are you going to be? That there is this neatness that we're trying to get to. And right now what we're hearing, this is passion, passion for decades. A lot of people ask me, about and certainly Tim you know in this period of time you know more businesses starting up in June and July than ever before what is a way that people can find their passion if they don't know if their senses have been numbed for whatever reason how do people find passion gosh that it's a hard one yes it it is a hard one it comes up for me probably every week i will have people come to me and say I know I want to be a master of my own destiny. I know that there is more, but I don't know what it is. And I've got to say, I think that that can happen to a lot of society. We're herded into our education system, then we're herded out and we find ourselves in professions. But is that really who we are? As you said, you know, you, I would say you found yourself now in this period of your life. Is it that you have to be relaxed and go with the universe and what it's pushing you into? Be curious. I talk to a lot of people about this and I try to take my soft social worker tone of voice off and I become hard and I become hard and I say to people, like everything else in life, do you want it easy? Do you want it really easy? Do you want to open a box or buy a magazine or watch a television show which will give you your passion? If you don't invest in yourself, you deserve what you get. You've got to invest in yourself. Mm. Curiosity isn't something you're born with or not born with. Everybody has a degree of it. That's how children go from childhood to adulthood, by being curious. It gets knocked out of you, but usually by insensate parents who themselves are rather numb and dull. You've got to invest in yourself. Mm -hmm. Several things you've got to realize. Number one, good luck is not something that happens to other people. It can happen to you, but it's a byproduct of the work you put into things. It's not really luck at all. I mean, occasionally it's luck, as in you're in the right place at the right time. So many people, and I'm talking about some very, very high-ranking people, are unbelievably incurious. Mm -hmm. They may be qualified to the eyeballs, but they're totally uneducated. They have no curiosity. I mean, the people that are inspiring that I come across are people who are widely read or watched or listened, but most importantly, experienced. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more depressing than being in a London salon room with all these smart, high-achieving people and you talk to people. And I'm going to say something horrid. I'm quite widely read. And when you sit at a table and you hear people mouthing off about their opinions and they want their peer group to think they're clever, and I'm saying... I read that article in The Economist. You just hope that everybody else at this table hasn't read it. Mm. People are just so intent on the laziness of non-thought. And it happens everywhere. I'm an environmentalist, uh, supposedly, although I don't really want to go on holiday with any other environmentalists. I'd rather drill my teeth. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I love being provocative. And I go into audiences and I say, who here is against nuclear? And almost all the audience will say they want to please daddy. So they put their hand up. And then you say, Why? And it's usually only about 1% of that audience even know why they're against nuclear. Mm. I actually am against the type of nuclear we currently use. But the thoughtless tribalism 
that we have fallen into in the world is extraordinary. And it's as bad on the left and the liberal side as it is on the right. And I get really furious when I see my friends talking about President Trump or Bolsonaro or whatever, both of whom I find pretty questionable. But they do it with a complete lack of knowledge for how incompetent and unvisionary those who are supposedly champions of the opposing view are. And one of the really interesting things about the extreme views of, say, the what are called populist movements is that what they're doing is throwing flour over the invisible man. And by throwing flour over the invisible man, it's showing to all of us that the battles for the liberties that we wanted to have are by no means won. They're not. We just got ourselves into an echo chamber mm. where we were just talking to other people like ourselves and thinking that was a really good thing. And that must be the view shared by everybody. I only say this because I love taking my own prejudices for a walk. I spend a lot of time questioning what I believe and why I believe it to expose the bias that I have. I have huge biases to find the information which confirms my prejudices. And you have got to keep taking your prejudices for a walk. There's yes. a wonderful piece of graffiti as you go over the Severn Bridge into Wales. Someone has sprayed on a building. Some open minds should be closed for repair. And I think that ought to be a mantra for all of us. Yes. Yes, my politics may well be on the left, but you know what? Those of us who are slightly on the left ought to shut the so-and-so up for a while and really listen to people who've got other views by listen, not wait for the gap where you can just tell them they're idiots. Listen so you can understand. Mm. And maybe, maybe we will find that there are actually ways forward where the vision for the country or the world that we have may be remarkably common. It's just the way of getting there is different. And maybe we're all capable of a bit of compromise. As I said, there was no way of squeezing all of Sir Tim's wisdom into one podcast. So make sure you tune in for part two. If you have enjoyed this episode with Sir Tim Smith, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Dame Stephanie Shirley. You can find any of my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if we've helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.